Welcome to Making It Happen, a career in the performing arts, where we discuss how to break into the performing arts industry for yourself or your child, teen, or young adult. Guests include professionals who are passionate and share my vision of helping talented individuals land professional representation and have successful careers in the arts. My name is Lisa Solak, and I am the CEO and founder of Making It Happen, a career in the performing arts, having helped hundreds of clients break into the performing arts business on stage, in films, television, commercial work, and more. This podcast is supplemental to my groundbreaking online courses. For more information, check out all the ways you can benefit from my courses, programs, my free weekly newsletter, and free guides. You can go to lbctalent.com. My guest today is Anthony Abson. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, Lisa. Thank you for asking. My background makes a point that I always want to make, which is what Stanislavski said, no recipes, whatever works. And when I and I tell this to my students, because when I think about my teachers, most of whom wouldn't talk to one another, they were that they were that <laughs> opposite. I mean, oh my God, you know, Lee and Stella, Gortowski was not crazy about Strasbourg and Peter Brook was that, you know, it just, but as I say often, it inoculated me that that mix of folks who really, for the most part, uh, didn't get along or refused to talk to one another, or at the very least were very, very different in their approach. It inoculated me against thinking there was any possible recipe for human beings. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the the one point about my background that I want to make, and I'm grateful for it. I'll tell you, there are a lot of recipes out there, uh, and that you can't have a recipe for human beings. So that's my one point about the, the background. When did you realize that performing arts in any regard was something that you wanted to pursue? Like, did something happen when you were a young child? Did you have some pivotal moment that you were like, I, I want to do this? Like, where was it as a child? Do you, do you recall? Can you share any of that? Aside from early on wanting to be a paleontologist, because I love dinosaurs. <laughs> but I also, very early, uh, I couldn't have been more than five or six. And I don't know where I got this from. It was probably from variety shows on TV. But I begged my parents to let me have tap dancing lessons. And I, I remember I, I I kept my taps for a long time afterwards, but I and I didn't stick with the lessons, but I I can look at that as an early sign of it of an impulse towards some kind of performing. All I remember is heel toe, heel step. <laughs> but that I, I look at that as an early harbinger of of path towards poverty and rejection that I've been on <laughs> ever since. Mm -hmm. I was cast in uh, elementary school as the rear end of a camel. Uh, they, were <laughs> they were doing a, a production of Aladdin, and there, there was a part for a camel. His name was Nuffsed. Okay. And I'll never forget Stuart Palmer was the front end of the camel and he got to say lines. But, in, and I was the ass. <laughs> uh, I just had to move, you know, so it looked real. But I remember it might've been my first experience of schadenfreude, taking delight in the misfortune of others. Stuart Palmer got sick and I was promoted <laughs> to the front of the camel. 
and I got lines to say. Oh, no. I think that my unholy joy at Stuart's misfortune was another indicator <laughs> that I really wanted to act. That's a great story. <laughs> Most of them were enough said. Mm -hmm. But that I was so happy to be moved up to, to the front of the camera. <laughs> But that's, you know what, that's that happens, I think, to a lot of us, right? That we're in that space. And I think you have to be willing to be the back of the camel. You know, <laughs> I think that's part of the problem. Yes. With yes. Can you imagine if I had said, I'm, I'm, I'm too good to be the back of the camel. <laughs> but you know how it is for us. We're addicts. And, and we'll, we'll take any part. What saddens me is that, I mean, less five, 10 years, I've noticed that that, I'll play any part, I'm just, I just want to act. That seems to have been eroded a little bit. I noticed a little bit more pickiness, a little bit more fussiness. Um, should I even take this part? It's only a cosign. Are you crazy? Yeah. But I think that one of the least addressed elements of those of us who are called to perform is this word appetite. And um, you can't teach appetite. What, and So when someone says, oh, I, it's just a coaster, I don't think I'll even, I wonder, and, and it astonishes me, if they're in class, that means they audition, they beat out about, a, you know, I don't know the numbers, but over 1,200 apply, we only take 120, I failed math, so, but it's a very high concentration of talent. And it astonishes me, Lisa, that they could have talent and not appetite I, absolutely that's just astonishing <laughs> you can't teach appetite i love that word that's what i that's what i've been noticing i hope it's not a trend the, the, there are of course always people that are rabid and ravenous and will do anything to act sadly not all of them have talent <laughs> but it just is astonishing to me you could have talent and no appetite yeah, I've found that too in the years that I've been teaching and working with um, passionate people, some of whom have the talent and don't have the drive or the grit. Like I use that a lot, the word grit. But you know, I don't think that they will survive or succeed because <clears throat> you got to have those things as well, the grit. Mm -hmm. So what happened? So that was when you were um, in that first musical, was that in your teen years you mentioned? No, I was in... Uh, elementary school. Did you continue to do theater through high school? Yeah, I was the, uh, in my high school, I was the president of the drama club. I was that kid, was just dying to act. And um, I did summer stock uh, during the summers. From the time I was, maybe even before I was in high school, I was doing children's theater. Okay. And I would go back to school in the fall and I would just act in anything that they were doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Summer Stock, uh, first as children's theater on Cape Cod, and then Summer Stock in other parts of New England. Uh, that was my fix. Did you end up getting the, the the itch to direct? Like, did you do some directing in high school? You know how sometimes they allow the students to do some directing? Because the rest of your career at such a young age, you began in that space too yes i um i wrote this somewhere 
one of my earliest memories of children's theater. And I think early on, I was not only acting in children's theater, but uh, I think they gave me the position of AD. I remember also when I was in high school in children's theater, I started to teach. I don't know where that came from. And I think it's even in my book or something, but I wrote one of my earliest memories is writing the name Stanislavski on a blackboard in front of a lot of really bored and bewildered, I guess it was our apprentices. Uh, but yeah, even then. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot, I think there's a lot of young people at the high school level that do start to see that tendency toward leadership, directing, understanding more than the average student at that age. I have had clients like that. I have one right now who is actually attending NYU. He went through that same kind of story of just as a young person wanting to do all of everything and knowing all the names of everyone and doing all the research and reading all the books and knowing Meisner and Stanislavski and knowing all of this. And he just started in NYU. He's a freshman there this year. So it's crazy, right? It's crazy, but that's interesting. Also, what's interesting is that you reminded me that you said this young man studied everything. As you well know, I hope it's still true, Doing stock meant you learned how to design and execute lights, uh, how to build scenery, how to stage manage, how to be on stage crew, all that other stuff. I don't know if kids do that anymore. I, th I think it depends on the collegiate program that, that they go into. I think it depends on what type of program they enter into. I would hope that they do. I think a lot of them do their freshman year in college. Are you familiar with any of that? But I wish... I hope that some of them aren't relying just on college. I hope some of them are going off and doing summer stock. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no theater. Yeah. Yeah, I encourage them to. I have a strange relationship to the, the collegiate route because I graduated Columbia in 1967. Uh, during my years at Columbia, there was no theater department. Uh, now, in a way, that was a blessing because I it pushed me uh, to where I made my off-Broadway debut at the Sheridan Square Playhouse. Because there was no theater program, I was an addict and I needed my fix. And it, yeah. it, was, it was terrible for a lot of kids. But for me, the, uh, the, the absence of that compelled me and impelled me to seek it elsewhere. As I say, I was acting in an AD off-Broadway and the woman whose project I was uh, involved with she was a member of the actor's studio. And so she brought me, I'm, I couldn't have been more than 19 or so to the actor's studio. She let me observe. And for a, a while, while I was in college, I was working on Broadway. Uh, I got my equity card, but I was also twice a week exposed to Strasbourg. So, That's a huge gift. Isn't it crazy? But it was disguised as a bummer. No, we don't have a theater program. True. And yet, uh, the breakdown was a breakthrough. Now, the second part of this story is that 1967, when I was about to graduate, they instituted a theater program for the next year. And they offered me a full scholarship to be part of the first class of this 
theater program. Okay, another gift. <laughs> That's but, great. But I turned it down because I had already, you know, as I say, I'd been in the in the mix in the outside world, and and I was 21 at the time. I was offered a chance to go to New Zealand, help start their first international professional theater company and training academy, sponsored by the Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council. <laughs> the- of course I said yes. Wait, that. wait, 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 stop the train. How <laughs> old were you? Well, when I was appointed by the Queen's Arts Council, I was 21. By the time I arrived in New Zealand, I had just turned 22. You I must could... have been an I amazing know. actor and director, even I, at that age. I think I was a little crazy and they didn't, and they thought, oh, then maybe there's something there. Uh, I couldn't attend my graduation. I had to be in New Zealand uh, on that day. But that, I'd also, I look back on that, Lisa, and I see, oh, mm, my priorities already were mm-hmm. not to study it, but to do it. Although I did study, but, you know, I made my own course of study. For some reason, I had a tendency towards rigor. That's my non-collegiate route. I, I, I adore that. I've had a number of clients, one in particular that I'm thinking about right now, who was at Boston Conservatory, and I've been working with him, you know, mentoring him one-on-one um, since he was young, and then we took a break for a little while, and he got into Boston Conservatory's program for musical theater, and then I started mentoring him again, probably around his end of his sophomore year in college, And by the time he was close to the end of his junior year, there were so many opportunities being given to him. Same kind of like, you know, type A wants to be working. And he kept saying to me, I just want to be working. I want to be on stage. This is what I want to do. So ultimately, with the opportunities he was given and doing all the summer stock, like you suggested, you know, in the summers. And um, I said to him, why don't you just ask and find out if you can graduate early? See if you can graduate early. See if you see if you have enough credits. Sure enough, that's what happened. And then within a short amount of time after that, we were able to help secure an agent for him in New York, a top agency in New York, and he's been doing amazing things. So sometimes I think you have to look and color outside the box a little bit. <laughs> Especially when there's so much appetite there. That, that goes back to what I said a, a while ago, no recipes. And that's not just in terms of actor training, that's also in terms of the actor's path. I, it's so wrong to see a kid like that who's just frothing at the bit, say, <laughs> but no, you have to complete your four-year uh, conservatory training. No no shade uh, thrown at the conservatory programs, but it'd be a crime to take a kid like that and, and stunt his appetite. Yeah. You're, Absolutely. So you traveled all over the world, though. You started in New Zealand and you were 22. I'm trying to remember. You also spent time in France, right? In Paris as well? Or was that later? The Canterbury Theatre Company in Christchurch, New Zealand, which started with, with great promise. Okay. <laughs> See where this is going. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we really did have an international company. We had, we had people from all over the English-speaking world, uh, England and Australia and New Zealand and uh, America and some other places. And by the way, uh, I was in the company and directing at 22 and acting with 
people whose last director had been Laurence Olivier. What? <laughs> so it's kind of intimidating. And but, yeah, but, just slightly intimidating. What? Also, uh, you know, the, from the Bristol Old Vic and all sorts of places. Mm -hmm. But all of us had been intrigued and enticed by the idea of just suddenly up and flying to uh, the opposite end of the world mm -hmm. to start something new. And that's why we found ourselves in this wonderfully mixed company. Uh, but later in 1967, <clears throat> London devalued the pound. Uh, that caused some problems. I should interject that when I was appointed, uh, I was appointed resident actor, uh, director of the Experimental Theater Lab of the Christchurch Academy of Dramatic Arts and an actor. I thought New Zealand was up around Canada somewhere. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. I, because my elementary school, for some reason, never taught geography. The only thing we ever did about geography was one day they said, draw an outline map of the world. That was it. So I thought, all right, New Zealand, Newfoundland, it must be up there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, I had, overall, I had 10 years of Latin, but no geography. And that's, so, that's and, funny. And, well, that's funny, but you can imagine my shock. Yeah, when you, when you got the, when you had to get the plane ticket and realized you're flying on the other side of the world, it's going to take you like an entire literally, day. Literally, yes. We had to cross the international dateline. It was astonishing. But uh, but when London devalued the pound, that had an enormous and uh, very seriously bad ripple effect on all the economies of the members of the British Commonwealth, of which New Zealand was one. And so the theater went bankrupt. Oh, dear. And all the people in the company who were members of the British Commonwealth were able to immediately uh, get a draw unemployment, and mm -hmm. uh, there were provisions made for them to get back home. And by that time, they had fired the other Americans. So by that time, I was the only American left, and I was not a member of the British Commonwealth. And there was no, I could not draw unemployment, nor uh -huh. was there money to send me home. Oh no! And and this is embarrassing, but. There was a line, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. <laughs> I know that line. <laughs> we had to. A good one. Yeah. And we had to, we all had had uh, our separate houses, but a lot of us then, uh, the guy from uh, Olivier's company and uh, one or two other people and I, we had to move in together in one house. I was in a worse situation than anybody else uh, financially. They finally had to take up uh, what they called a public charity appeal to send the young American home. Really? Yep. Uh, a guy who was on our board, he ran the local pharmacy in town. And so he put up a banner across the main street of Christchurch, New Zealand, saying that public charity appeal to send the young American home. Uh, wow. Isn't that incredible that we arrived to and with great fanfare? Uh, the first the country's first international uh, theater company and uh, training academy sponsored by the Queen. And that's how we ended. Interesting.
And so when I got back to New York, uh, by that time it was 68, I guess, uh, I was broke. What an interesting experience for a very young man to have that, that rush and then that crash. I think that happens a lot, right? To young people uh, in the industry. Yours was highly unusual, but yeah. It prepares you for the reality of this profession. <laughs> I'll never forget, Lisa. I was very good friends with a guy, uh, Michael O'Sullivan, who was uh, really a very well-known actor in the 60s and um, played Tartuffe uh, for Lincoln Center and was in movies. And he let me direct uh, a play he wrote. But I'll never forget, Michael, they did a musical of Superman. Michael was in it. He played the villain. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Superman closed very quickly. I'll never forget going to his apartment. And it was kind of a visual uh, symbol of our profession. One room of his apartment was beautifully done. And the rest didn't even have chairs. We had to sit on orange crates. What? He, th when the show closed, he had no money to finish the, the decoration, <laughs> the, the, the furnishings, the, the anything. And I thought, oh, that says it all. <laughs> that one room, Lisa, was beautiful. It was gorgeous. If only he had still had the money for the chairs. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, so he'd have somewhere to sit. On, on those, literally on wooden crates. But again, that's that's what we sign up for. And then, and then, though, that was 68. And yet, by before the end of 68, I was in Aix-en-Provence working with Grotowski. And How? How did that, how did you end up, how did you get those doors to open? Was it because of the previous credit? Oh, you know what? We had started to hear about uh, Grotowski in the, in the mid-60s. When I was in New Zealand, and I was not just, as I said, directing and acting, but I was the Experimental Theater Laboratory, mm -hmm. yeah. of Dramatic Art, I wrote him a letter. I wrote Grotowski a letter because I knew enough about his work that I thought that would be really cool. And he wrote back. He said, yeah, I'll come to New Zealand. And then I said, but now you can't. <laughs> but we kept in touch. And, uh, and then he invited me to what they call a stage. I guess you could translate it as a workshop. The Centre Dramatique National du Sud-Est in Aix-en-Provence. And that blew my mind. And that, as I say, was sometime in 68. So by that time, uh, a lot had happened. And you were, you were already, you were just in your early 20s at that point. By that time, I was 23. Unreal. Yep. But again, you were hungry. You mentioned that appetite earlier. You were hungry. And I find with the majority of my adult clients, the ones that will execute those types of things, the ones that will ask, the ones that will write the the email, the ones that will, you know, go to the show and, you know, participate in all of the different networking opportunities and kind of get themselves in through those doors, you know, and do it appropriately and not inappropriately. Of course, there's a there's a knack and a skill to it, and you have to have the talent behind every behind you. You know, you have to have that that talent and ability too. I think. I don't. Sometimes, Elisa, it strikes me as Darwinian. Mm. No. Agreed. Survival. Agreed. The, the fittest. But what does the fittest mean? 
that they have both the talent and the drive to to last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I, you know sometimes I'm not I'm not good with Facebook and that stuff, but once in a while a thing will pop up or on LinkedIn, which I still can't even get on because I keep forgetting my password or something. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? But once in a while, and it's not infrequent. Some a, a thing will pop up that tells me that a young actor who had been in class, who I thought had showed some promise, congratulates so-and-so on their third year with this real estate company. And I have mixed emotions. It makes me sad, but it also makes me think, you well, know, if it was meant to be, it, it, they would not be a real estate agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, either a, a lack of appetite or... I was wrong about the talent or the combination, but doesn't it, I'm sure that you have the same experience and doesn't it sometimes make you sad all day was so, but anyway. Yeah. I think though, you know what though, on that front, the fact that you mentioned that a lot of my clients over the years, and I actually have letters in a file from years ago and emails to prove it, that they, they went into other fields, but they ended up excelling in those fields because of their experience as an actor, they ended up being able to become, you know, a lead, a leading player for say, you know, a pharmaceutical company. I'm thinking of one girl in particular, you know what I mean? And, and she's got four secretaries under her and she's the first one in her family to have gone through a collegiate program and all of that. She, you know, she credits to the training and to the performance side of things. So I think there is a good part of that. You know, there is a good side to we're training them and they're participating. But I get that same feeling when I have those super talented people that I'm like, oh my gosh, you could take this all the way. And, you know, they have to choose their path. You can't teach appetite. I'm very glad you mentioned this though, because that that makes me feel a little better that it's not, you know, it's not about me. It's not about whether I feel disappointed for them it's if they were able to transmute and channel their abilities into some other area with success, then that's also Darwinian, isn't it? It is. Yeah. That, that, mm -hmm. that, that makes me feel better about it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I know it's just so hard when you get a student who's just gifted and then if they don't put in the work or they don't, you know, put in the time or they don't, or they have that attitude of co-star, I don't want to take that. You know, that what you mentioned earlier prior to us getting on, you know what I mean? But the, uh, again, doesn't it come down to uh, appetite? I've never really thought this out in de detail, but you could make a case that there is a precise correlation between talent and appetite both in terms of when it goes into the business and when it goes into another business. Mm -hmm. It's just so fascinating. Yeah. I'm fond of saying uh, that we are both the violinist and the violin, and that, that that makes it extraordinarily complex. You know, the violinist can say, oh, I'm too sick to play today, and he puts the violin down, uh, or he's upset, but the violin is not upset but you know with us we're sick that we still got to play the violin and if we're upset we still got to play that same instrument mm -hmm. i worry that 
with so many options with, with this and 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 all the the all that stuff i don't even know the names i worry that something of the old ways where you you learned the craft or not just because i did it because but because it, it has to do with the, the craft as a craft you learn about lighting design you learn about stage management you i remember often being in the wings dressed all in black waiting for the blackout to run on quietly and do the set change that we'd rehearsed 24 times i i i, I mourn that loss in, in their, their backgrounds uh, the as i told you earlier stock of course i hope it's still this way we i know how to build a set I'm not good at it but if i had to i could build the set and i know mm -hmm style and a rail is and i know what a leco is and i know how it's different from a fresnel i think that stuff that's still important maybe not directly applicable but god absolutely indirectly applicable there's a sense of this whole thing as a craft and people talking about craft a lot lately but it's extremely narrowly defined i agree with you yeah i agree with you totally <clears throat> because i think they're missing some of the foundation yep and i think Part of it is because they're too quick. They want everything too quick. They're used to that instant gratification of social media. So they want it fast. And because the technology is, is what is breeding that, because you're able to go into an application and create a mini movie that you can post eight times a day if you want. You can do it you know, quickly. And I think that all breeds these kids that are brought up on that. It breeds that we want to go fast. We want to move fast. We don't want to do that studying. We don't want to be, you know, tearing apart the, you know, all the details of things. And I think, you know, it's interesting. And let me, let me segue to something. So I'd love your opinion on this. Someone who's considered a beginner versus let's call it an intermediate versus let's call it an advanced or a professional in the, in an, as an actor, let's look at that whole gamut. And I found that once a student gets past that intermediate level to where they're actually a little bit more advanced, a little bit more hitting the pro side, doing pro work, they tend to dive into the detail and take the time and slow down and do the work and analyze the character and do all of the things um, much of what you teach, which we can get into later, um, you know, a little bit about that. I'd love for people to kind of hear your philosophy there. But what I find is that when they're beginners, they want it all quick. And when they're intermediate, they start to go, oh, this is a lot of work. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to get them through that intermediate level sometimes. And I don't know whether that is a process that happens with the student who is not hungry and does not have the appetite. That's How my, do you feel about all that? Or can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on the different levels of the student? I never had to motivate an actor who was uh, hungry. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, we, we audition, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, I, I, I think we've gotten better and better at this very elusive thing called the identification of talent, but but it has been effective insofar as I can truthfully say that 
the, the about the 120 that we have in the six classes, uh, they all want it. And they, they partly because they had to prepare the audition, uh, it, it, you'd be amazed, or maybe not, at how many people uh, filtered themselves out when they realized, oh God, I've got to memorize a monologue. <laughs> what? Are you serious? That's like the first step. By the time that we've identified them as talented, I believe we've been pretty good at identifying this thing we're talking about, lack of appetite. Mm-hmm. And as, as I said earlier, you can't teach appetite. And it's isn't it sad when you can have a gift and look that gift horse in the mouth? That is a sad thing. However, yeah. it is their thing. It's a personal thing. It's none of our business after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And more recently, a lot, I have clients all over the country and on four continents now, which is crazy. But a lot of them, when they first, when I first have conversations with parents, a lot of them are starting to ask, which I appreciate, is my child talented enough? Is my child, should I be putting time, effort, money into this? Is this something that could be a thing? Because they have no sense of the, you know, the scale, you know, like looking at a beginner through someone, a child or teen that could get on Broadway or get into a TV show or on a film, in a film, they don't have any idea. And that's a difficult thing. I just actually wrote an entire segment, which I haven't released yet, but an entire segment, because I'm going to try to put together something to guide parents that I can just share the guide with them to say, these are the things to look for. So I have been asking a lot of colleagues and a lot of people in the industry, like, what do you think? Like, what is it? And this appetite comes up all the time with the parents because they say, it seems like she's, you know, she's singing all over the house. Every chance she gets, she wants to be on the fireplace hearth, you know, quoting some cartoon that she just watched you know, that I think that comes up when they're young. I think it's something that is there. And if it's, if it's nurtured in some way, when the child is young, do you work with young kids or just, you're just doing adults and teens? I've I've had some young ones over the years. Speaking of which, we do now have uh, a youth division. Okay. My, my daughter who has actually studied with me for many years, Shay, uh, runs the youth division and um it's been going very well because she's able to translate what i do into uh ways that are effective and comprehensible to really young people mm-hmm. with kids in the single digits like six eight well you know what single digits are sure uh, yeah sure but the uh the results so far have been wonderful i mean she has she, it, it, at the moment they're not group classes she's coaching Mm-hmm. There will be group classes uh, after a while. It's been um, really a wonderful uh, experience, I, I think, for even the, for the kids as well as for Shay and for me to see this translated into a, a seven-year-old uh, brain. World, yeah, yeah, I love that. I'd also say, Lisa, that I think that it is part of human nature when you're young to maybe sing and dance around the house. Uh, I, I, I really don't think that it's all automatically a sign of the gift. Mm-hmm. So many young people want to r- run around and sing and dance and play 
every young person plays. And what is it that we do? It's called playing a part, putting on a play. Actors are called players. And so there's a part of play that is universal to all and endemic to all humans. And then the interesting question is, who are the kids that never grow up? Okay. And that's that's the actor. Uh, you know, in the Bible it says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. And then I grow up, I put away childish things. And we don't. And we're putting on a play and we are playing a part. That I think is a real tell not that the kid is singing and dancing around the house at seven years old. Uh, they should live and be well. But when it doesn't go away, when the other kids are no longer singing and dancing and they still are, I think that's a sign. Interesting. I love that. By the way, I think that that's why when you, you've left that stage where you're just playing and dancing like every other kid, and when you're still doing it and your colleagues, you know, companions have stopped and you're still doing it. I think that's the, the a great moment for training to begin. You don't, the ba ballet, they start them young as soon as they identify the talent. Musicians, I don't have to tell you. Mm -hmm. Us, we wait a little bit too long, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a gift, is it not, that we get to work with the gifted? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I feel like I get to stay in this playful fantasy world yeah. all the time. Then, of course, there's the poverty and the rejection, as I said earlier, but you know what? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> there's two very, the the two ends of the stick that are so far from one another. Yep. The feast and the famine. <laughs> if you're doing what you love, I don't think you'll ever starve. I really don't. Yeah. Like, I have to agree there. That might, that the naivete of that might bump up against certain economic, harsh economic realities. But in theory, <laughs> I totally believe that. Based on what I've read in your bio, because I didn't know this, I apologize that I didn't know this and I didn't do the research before I badgered you to work with my young son, Kevin, back in the day <laughs> when I kept reaching out and reaching out until you saw him which thank you by the way you changed the whole trajectory of his career he loves you and my son Kurt loves you both of them love you in looking at your bio you have worked with top individuals in this industry right like the very top who influenced you the most if there was one that did so and why or did they all influence you there I was writing the, the name Stanislavski on the board to on the board to the board. Uh, so there was already that tendency, I think, te uh, directing, which I was doing, is a form of teaching and mentoring. You know, I in my book, I dedicate it to, you know, my family and my students and also to all five of them, because all five of them in very, very different ways. Uh, contributed to my development and for which I am very grateful. And as I told you earlier, I'm grateful that they're so different that they inoculated me against recipes. The first of those teachers was uh, Grotowski. What was enormously impactful for me was that I had always been 
a not terribly serious actor. Uh, I, and I did a lot of summer stock, as I say, and I did a lot of musicals. Uh, and I could put over a song. My voice wasn't great, but I didn't do the thing. <laughs> but I, what I didn't realize until I read about, heard about, and worked with uh, Grotowski was that there was something more. It wasn't that it was a, a sudden thought. It was like it, that idea that it was, Grotowski used to talk about the holy theater. It kind of struck a very deep chord that was already within me, just waiting to be struck. That I had always sensed in an incohate manner that there was something very pure and spiritual about this art form. While I was out there, you know, singing and dancing. <laughs> I say this with some strange kind of pride. I was even booed. I was performing Polonius somewhere in New York. I can't even, it was the 60s, we may have been high. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it was New York that it, 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 I, I was very, very, uh, and I was getting some work, but it was, it was very, looking back, kind of superficial. Uh, and yet there was this other note that was just waiting to be struck. That really changed a lot for me. I realized, oh, uh, it's not about displaying yourself. It's about revealing the truth. And that was, a, that was a big one. And it satisfied a yearning in me that I didn't even know that I had. But I could also go on and on. I could tell you that Harold Clerman awakened me to something. I, I had a, a literary version of how superficial I was as an actor. And it was Harold that taught me, these are not plays, these are ideas. Oh my God. And that, and that making that contribution of bringing that idea to life. And then Stella, Stella Adler's one, also one of my teachers, and it's odd because Stella and Howard were married for a brief period of time. But anyway, and Stella then went along, uh, went further with this and said, you're, I'll never forget this. She had um, a little room off the stage from whence she presided. But in that small room, there was a man, a hairdresser. <laughs> and so she would sit on a chair. Um, it was it was unavoidably throne-like, this chair. Okay. <laughs> and she would sit there with her makeup and 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 she would teach. And then she would go at the end of class, she would go into that little room and he would touch her up. <laughs> oh no. But Stella complimented Harold's amazing me with the idea that there were ideas. With when Stella went further or continued, I should say, along that same theoretical path, said, Your characters stand for thousands of people. And that they are there, not as stereotypes, but as archetypes, that they are there in the service of the idea. So, you know, this is a pretty large amount of ahas that yes. I was getting from both Harold and from Stella. And then and with Strasbourg, I was a member at a very young age of the director's unit of the actor's studio. And I, in fact, I have pictures of me. I must've been still in my twenties with Lee. We did a, a, a session. Uh, oh, I know why. We did a session because uh, I was. It's, I gathered that I was one of the few people at the studio who had worked with Grotowski. 
And okay. Lee, Lee was a little bit threatened by uh, all the buzz. Uh, you know, as you must probably know, Lee was not an easy man. And uh, it's funny that I, I can see it now somewhere. I have them, me in my 20s, addressing a, the membership of the actor's studio with Lee, uh, talking about the differences between what Lee does and what Grotowski did. But, mm -hmm. but Lee, difficult as he was, and I was a guest in his apartment. I mean, I, he was difficult, but he was very generous to me, as were they all. I was in Stella's apartment. That, that was a vision of pink and white. I just, oh my God. And Harold invited me into his apartment. I was so lucky because I had so many questions. And no matter, despite how far along in their careers they were, they still made the time to to invite a hungry young young kid into their apartment and into their minds and their hearts. From Harold, I got the idea that, of the idea, how important that was. What is the author saying to the world? Ah, oh my God. And and then th those characters are not random. Those characters have each been chosen to bring to life a certain aspect of that idea. That And mm -hmm. Stella's saying they stand for thousands of people. And it was Lee who, from whom I really got the importance of emotional value of the real lived past. I got from Lee uh, a real understanding of how to access the real lived past. And from Stella, sometimes the real lived past is either not analogous or it's just not healthy. Mm. For Lee, there was never never a, uh, a roadblock. Uh, the, the, the more painful, the better was the unspoken vibe at the studio and mm -hmm. then he's telling me you can make it up and if you have talent you will believe it as yeah. if it were real you will react to it as if it were real mm -hmm. and, so, audience. and so a lot of I'm, I'm trying it's a great question i hope i'm being coherent I'm trying to distill from a lot of experiences in a lot of different countries and a lot of very different people mm -hmm. uh, what they contributed to the way I work now. And last but not least is Peter Brook. Uh, because suddenly in 72, I find myself in Paris at the International Center of Theater Research. And um, with Brook, we we never worked in English. It was uh, early on in, in this undertaking of his. You know, it, it takes a, a certain kind of exploratory uh, madness to quit your job at the Royal Shakespeare Company and go to Paris and start a, 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 a center of theater research. We worked a lot with just bird calls. Really? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We would perform, well, not for an audience, but when we were working, we would work on pieces. By the way, the, the raw material that we were given were written by Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes was Sylvia Plath's husband, and he was the poet laureate of England. And so, wow, and th these were like amazing pieces, but they had wow. no dialogue. They had wonderful situations. And so sometimes, uh, not sometimes, a lot of times, we would perform them in bird call. But we also were exposed to Avestan, the ancient language of the Zoroastrian priests. <laughs> okay, now you've lost me. What? And, and also, uh, Ted 
Ted wrote out syllables, words that that he was making. He was made. He made up a language called orgast. Okay. O r h a s t orgast. Talk about playing. <laughs> okay, I'm so, with you now. <laughs> so we would also work in orgast, and he made up this language. Ted Ted Hughes made up this language, and he was the basically the writer of residence. Uh, but what what was mind opening to me. I think it was Artaud who said this, you have to break through language in order to touch life. And that was also a, a, a big aha for me because within my own actor and I saw in my colleagues, when your instrument is deprived of the ease and clarity of language mm -hmm. that the other person understands, then you really have to all hands on deck to, to express yourself. And mm -hmm. so it was both in terms of the demands made on the instrument and also the um, that place where, as I said, as Arto said, where you have broken through language and you were touching life, even though it was crazy, there was a freedom in our work uh, and an impulsiveness in our work. Mm -hmm. It's really wonderful. It, it reminded me of something that Grotowski said years ago that really impacted me. And it was something that I... I talked to Lee about when, when I was a guest in his home. Gorotovsky was very fond of this, this image that the lion does not leap at the gazelle. The lion, even though he's hundreds of pounds and is just basking in the sun on a rock, the lion does not leap at the gazelle. The lion suddenly smells the gazelle, sees the gazelle, and then you could say the lion is leapt by the gazelle. So that, as opposed to the circus lion, circus lion leaps because he's had to do it a hundred times. He gets a treat at the end. So the ringmaster cracks the whip, the lion, and that's the actor who is now uh, on automatic to be able to, every time, not repeat the leap, but to repeat the gazelle. Uh, that, was, that was an enormous uh, thing for me to understand uh, from Grotowski. Now, when I was at, at Strasbourg's house, or maybe it was another time at the at the studio. Anyway, there was a time when, and I, I would bring him these things, you know, these these puzzles. And so I told him about that. And I said, so Lee, what do you think about this? That that it's the impulse. Because Lee, you know, was all about relaxation and emotional memory and, and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Sure. The sensory, the senses are the bait for the emotion. His teacher was Boleslavsky, who was early Stanislavsky. So I said to him, what about this? That the lion is leapt not by emotional recall, but by the scent and the smell of the, 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 the lion, of the gazelle. Yeah. And Lee said, and I think this is in my book, but Lee said, uh, and it's, it's just a classic example of where Lee was coming from, as opposed to where Kurotovsky was coming from. He said, but the lion has to be hungry. Can you give us your advice in a nutshell? Like give us your thoughts on a young adult who is navigating the industry in the attempt to gain representation, to actually work professionally, 
what advice would you give them? Do you have anything specific, some, you know, tidbits or like tips or tricks that you might want to suggest or could suggest to a young adult just starting out? Don't get successful before you get good. If you are really an actor, you are blessed because you've been given this precious gift called talent. And you have to, you have a responsibility to that talent. Your responsibility starts with the word called development. Don't be so focused on the other word, use of talent, what we call employment. Don't be so focused on getting, hopefully someone's going to use it, employ it, at the expense or the risk of ignoring the development of that talent, which should never stop. Look at um, uh, Casals, the greatest cellist of the 20th century. Uh, Casals continued to practice into his 90s. And when they said to him, Maestro, you're the greatest cellist in the world. Why, why do you keep practicing? And he looked at them like they were idiots. And he said, to get better. What I worry about is sometimes uh, an actor books a, a, a really nice part, and then they feel, okay, now I have a license to act. Uh, but in fact, in, in, if you look at the parable of the talents in the Bible, the talent was a silver coin, if I remember correctly. Uh, or, and, uh, you know, the, the servant that just buried the talent in the ground to keep it safe, when the master came back, the, the master reprimanded that servant for not making it grow. I mean, don't look the gift horse in the mouth. And that means we have to be doubly vigilant in our nurturing of this gift. Because mm -hmm. there's no condition for it. And there are no scales for it. Absolutely. And that's very interesting to note. Yeah. That's really good advice, Anthony, yeah, really good. God forbid, start using it again and again and again in a very narrow way that industry thinks is commercial and mm -hmm. neglecting the, the length and breadth of this gift that you've been given. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Mention a little bit, or if you could share a little bit about your program, what you have to offer, um, how someone can get in touch or can audition for your programs. Um, give us a little bit more about that. Uh, number one, it is, and I can't say this loudly and strongly enough, it is by audition. Uh, it just simply is. I'm too old to work with the talent free. And for their sake, uh, I believe that when I say no to somebody, uh, I'm doing them a service. And I am also confident that if I am wrong, they will go and do it anyway because they have the appetite and the drive. Uh, but we do, as I may have mentioned earlier, we audition 11, 1,200, uh, over 1,000 a year, and we take around 120. I think we take even less now, uh, fewer now because of COVID, we're all on Zoom. And you know that's a tough when you've got too many people in what I call the aquarium. Uh, so first thing is 
you got to be ready, willing, and able to audition. And as I said earlier, Lisa, that really screens out a lot. The, the ones that, that just can't get it together, they got to prepare. If they go on my website, uh, anthonyangel.com, they will see all the guidelines and instructions for auditioning. But I'll save them here. You got to prepare a short, memorized monologue, about one to two minutes, no longer, mm-hmm. which I work with them on. Oh, nice. I always work with them because a lot of times the first pass is riddled with tension and tension is a great concealer of talent sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I also do some work with them, uh, just getting to know them. I ask them about their mom and dad, uh, what do they do? And then I have sides from a sitcom and they have to do that. And they, Again, just the other day, um, and they're sent, when they fill out the audition form on the website and they apply, they are sent all of this, including the sides uh, and the instructions well in advance of their audition date. (laughs) I am always very uh, aware of the ones who clearly did not prepare the sides. Of course. Of course. You're already off book. And the ones who didn't even read that far, they're so sloppy nowadays, Lisa. And I think it's partly the technology. I agree with you. Same and here. Show up to audition. And then I tell them, pull up the sides and they say, what sides? And they didn't even read the whole email. What? It tells me something. They had a monologue, yes, but no, they, they just stopped reading because the attention span of the American actor is on the endangered species list. <laughs> Take my word for that. Um, I agree with you. And But I will say, and I'm proud of this, every single person that we say no to, and that's a lot of people, I have always given them advice. I, it, For example, if they are uh, it, it just terrible at comedy, I tell them where to go to get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're clearly... Uh, not available emotionally. I I have somebody that I send them to to do some sensory work. I have never just said no. And I, I take that as a point of pride. You know, they came to us with a dream and the least we can do is uh, help them along that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I say, and we and we now have had, we've inaugurated this uh, youth program as well, constantly reminded of the ancient and powerful and important part the actor has played and could continue to play uh, for the human race. Why has this talent, this genetic thing, survived over 10, 20, 30,000 years? It must have some value to us. <laughs> and um, that it survives, it, it, it's just remarkable. But it has to be, it has to be respected and, as I said earlier, nurtured. I, another thing I would like to say is that talent, as you well know, is uh, an equal opportunity uh, employer, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that those who have it are every different kind imaginable. Uh, and I will say, and I guess I'm bragging, 
that if they audition, they are going to be taken into a, uh, uh, I guess it's a studio. They call it the Anthony Studio. Okay, taken a studio where they will be amongst the most diverse class. One, I'll say one of the because I don't know every one of them. One of the most diverse classes in America. One of the most reasonably priced, but I feel it's important. Really reasonable. I mean, like stupidly reasonable price. <laughs> Don't even ask my wife about it. And number three, I'm proud that we have uh, one of the highest booking rates in America. So uh, I hope that that does not come across as cheesy uh, and self-promoting, but it it's important to realize that we are rigorous in our admissions process because we are rigorous in our belief in the contribution that they can make. They, what it, it was uh, Helen Hayes, believe it or not, who said, we as actors, we can warm the hearts, lift the spirits, and add something to the lives of that audience out there. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know what? And you're not bragging because, you know, I. it's funny because I teach all of my clients, there's times when you have to blow your own horn. And you're so modest about your talent and ability and your background, and it is remarkable. And what you've done for so many hundreds of students and hundreds of actors and for the acting profession itself has been remarkable and is to be is to be celebrated. So it's okay. It's, this is what we want to tell people, you know? And you also wrote a book. So... I tell everyone, all of my clients, I tell them to read your book. I tell them to reach out to you. Um, I'm a big advocate. And um, yeah, I think what you do is is pretty remarkable, as I said. So do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about the book, where they can get the book? And I think, did you have, do you have a second book that came out recently or is it coming out? I'm working on the second one. It, it, it's, a, it's taking me on a very bizarre journey but you know what it is it's, it's a little bit more autobiographical and i guess when i think about it it makes sense because my journey has been a bizarre journey <laughs> so how could the book not be uh but you can get the book i don't know barnes and nobles amazon you can get it online mm -hmm. uh, oh it's also on a kindle it's very cheap on kindle uh, i'm not good with the with that stuff the business mm -hmm. stuff but mm -hmm. it's out there i want to thank you so much you don't have any idea how much this means to me and to just my clients and all the people and the listeners. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I just wish you all good things. Um, and I hope you continue to do this great work that you're doing um, with all the actors and now the young actors that you're bringing in. Well, thank you. Thank you, darling. I, and I, as I told you, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. If you'd like to connect with Anthony, go to anthonyapeson.com and you can get all kinds of information about his classes and his lessons and as well as the audition information. And join me Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Do you need more information? Visit lbctalent.com and follow me on socials at lisasolak underscore lbctalent. By sharing our stories, we can help other talented individuals land the career of their dreams. If you're enjoying this podcast and you like the information we're sharing, please like and subscribe below.